Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Story of the Bridesmaids. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 8th, 2020. I've never liked the parable of the ten bridesmaids. When I first heard it as a child, I annoyed my Sunday school teacher by asking all the wrong questions in response. Why do the bridesmaids have to bring their own light to a wedding reception? Why are the wise bridesmaids stingy and mean? Why doesn't the groom show up for his own wedding until midnight? Why does the bride, whoever she is, put up with such a ridiculous delay? Where even is the bride in this story? And why, after keeping his poor bridesmaids waiting for hours, does the groom blame them for lateness and shut his door in their faces? In all honesty, these questions still bother me. They prevent me from gathering the pieces of this particular parable into a single interpretation that I can offer up with a colorful bow. Instead, all I can do is keep the pieces scattered and examine them by turns. Or, to switch metaphors, to turn the parable around and around in my fingers as if it's a diamond and see what it reveals from each angle, in each facet. I won't pretend that my various discoveries cohere and avoid contradiction. They don't. But maybe this is what we're supposed to do with Jesus' parables. Maybe we're supposed to let their meanings open out wider and wider and wider. Maybe the truths the parables reveal are various and infinite, impossible to lock down. In any case, here we go. Here are some interpretive possibilities for the story of the bridesmaids. There is going to be a wedding someday. No, really, there is. Here's a potentially uncomfortable question. When is the last time you heard or preached a sermon about the second coming of Jesus? Do you even remember? When is the last time you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, what if it's today? What if today is the day when God's kingdom comes in all of its fullness and our broken earth is restored and made whole, just as scripture promises? The truth is, many of us have grown accustomed to the bridegroom's absence accustomed and indifferent. His absence and delay are our norms, so much so that deep in our secret hearts we no longer believe he's going to return. We no longer believe there's going to be a wedding. After all, isn't that sci-fi children's story parting of the cloud stuff embarrassing? Won't people think we're delusional if we take it seriously? Maybe. But the problem with letting go of the eschaton is twofold. One, we have to make Jesus a liar in order to do it. Jesus said that he will return just as surely as he said he would be crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day. On what grounds shall we choose to disbelieve a stated promise of the risen Christ? And second, the coming of God's kingdom and all of its healing, justice-making fullness is the yardstick against which we must measure all of our own healing, justice-making efforts. The wedding feast is our ideal, our goal, our destination. Without it, we have no standard, no accountability, nothing to lean into, nothing to work towards, nothing to anticipate as we labor in God's name. The parable of the bridesmaids ends with a wedding. It ends in celebration and joy. We dare not abandon this glorious ending simply because we've grown tired of waiting. It's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. In the parable, the bridesmaids have to wait so long for the groom's arrival, they fall asleep. 
Surely they don't want the party to begin at midnight. It's not their choice or desire to wait. But the five bridesmaids who carry extra oil in their flasks prepare themselves for the long haul, just in case. They consider and take seriously the possibility of surprise, of delay, of hardship, of unpredictability. They don't allow their preconceived ideas about the groom or the party to distract them from what's actually in front of them. They remain open and adaptable to the circumstances they find themselves in. Do we? Are we ready for the long haul? Do we have the flexibility to handle the unexpected? Or are we clinging to rigid, narrow notions of what God's presence looks like, such that we miss God when God actually shows up? Can we bear an unpredictable bridegroom? A bridegroom who surprises us? If Jesus' notion of time, faithfulness, fulfillment, and celebration look different from ours, will we still follow him into the wedding hall? Or will we bail? Sometimes, doors close. Do what is needful now. I don't like the fact that the five foolish bridesmaids in the parable arrive too late to gain entrance to the wedding. I don't like the fact that the groom closes his doors. I don't like the fact that the story leaves five women out in the cold. But whether I like these things or not, they happen. Windows close. Chances fade. Time runs out. We know this. We experience it regularly. The opportunity to mend the friendship, forgive the debt, break the habit, write the check, heal the wound, confront the injustice, embrace the church, release the bitterness, closes down. The opportunity ends. We hate this, of course, so we tell ourselves it isn't true. We tell ourselves that there's always tomorrow, that we'll get to it, whatever it is, eventually, that there's still time left. But what if there isn't? What if this parable is telling us to be alert now, awake now, active now? What if it's inviting us to live as if each day, singular and fleeting, is all we have? Tomorrow, if it comes, will be its own gift, its own miracle, its own challenge. Don't presume that it belongs to you. Do what is holy and necessary now. You're more valuable than your oil supply, so stick around. As far as I can tell, the fatal mistake the five foolish bridesmaids make is that they leave. They assume that their oil supply is more important to the groom than their presence at his party. So they ditch this scene at its most crucial moment and go shopping, thus depriving themselves of a wonderful celebration and depriving the bridegroom of their companionship, support, and love on his special day. This is a point I want to press into a little bit because I totally get the foolish bridesmaids in this narrative moment. I get how hard it is to stick around when my light is fading and my reserves are low. I get what it's like to scramble for perfection, to insist on having my ducks in a row before I show up in front of God or the church or the world. After all, it's scary and vulnerable making to linger in the dark when my pitiful little lamp is flickering, my once robust faith is evaporating, and my measly leaky flask is filled with nothing but doubt and pain and grief and weariness. Only a bridesmaid who trusts in the groom's deep and unconditional compassion. Only a bridesmaid who knows that the groom has light and oil to spare. Only a bridesmaid who understands that her presence, messy and imperfect though it might be, is of intrinsic value to the groom, will find the honesty and the courage to stay. The bridesmaids in the parable lack this comprehension and courage, so five of them scatter, and I believe the wedding procession suffers as a result. Five fewer lights brighten the groom's path. 
Five fewer voices cry out with joy at his arrival. Five fewer friends dance and sing the night away in honor of the groom and his beloved bride. The loss is communal, extensive, and real. This is not a situation to celebrate or endorse. It's a situation to grieve. Perhaps a lesson of this parable is, don't allow your fear or your sense of inadequacy to keep you away from the party. Be willing to show up as you are, complicated, disheveled, half-lit and half-baked. The groom delights in you, not in your lamp. Your light doesn't have to dazzle. Remember, God created light. God is light. And Jesus is the light of the world. Your half-empty flask of oil isn't the point. You are. So stay. Scarcity isn't a thing in God's kingdom. Quit hoarding. Ironically enough, the wise bridesmaids in Jesus' parable distrust the sufficiency, generosity, and love of the bridegroom as much as the foolish bridesmaids do. Operating on the basis of scarcity and fear, they refuse to share their oil. Smug in their own preparedness and wisdom, they forget all about mercy, empathy, kinship, and hospitality. They forget that the point of a wedding celebration is celebration, gathering, communing, joining, sharing. It doesn't occur to them that their stinginess has consequences, that it sends their five companions stumbling into the midnight darkness, that it diminishes the wedding, depriving the bridal couple and their remaining guests of five lively, caring companions. I'm not sure what it will take for us Christians to live fully into the abundance of God, but it's clear that our assumptions about scarcity are killing us. We're so afraid of emptiness, we worship excess. We're so worried about opening our doors too wide, we shut them tight. We're so obsessed with our own rightness before God, we forget that rightness divorced from love is always wrong. We live in dread that there won't be enough to spare, enough grace, enough freedom, enough forgiveness, enough mercy. Somehow, we would rather shove people into the dark than give up the illusion of our own brightness. What would it be like to stop? To stop all of this? What would it be like to care more about the emptiness in our neighbor's flask than the brimming fullness of our own? What if Jesus isn't the door slammer? It is possible, given the context in which Matthew's Gospel was written, that Jesus isn't the bridegroom in this parable. We know that the Matthaean Jesus movement of the first century was in conflict with local religious leaders who considered their Christian peers heretical and deviant. It is likely that there was much discussion around who belonged and who didn't, who was in with God and who wasn't. Sound familiar? One of the great tragedies of the Christian story across history is that we are better known for policing our borders than for welcoming our neighbors. We are quick to say, I don't know you, to those who believe or practice differently than we do. We feel safer and more pious behind closed doors than we do with open arms. Maybe this parable is showing us the ugliness of the closed door. As I wrote at the start, these are interpretive possibilities for Jesus' parable of the bridesmaids. Surely there are other ones, other angles, other facets, other questions to ask and challenges to ponder. Which ones speak to you? Where do you see yourself in the story, and where do you see Jesus looking at you? Locate yourself and locate him. Start talking. The doors are open, and the wedding hall is full of holy light. This is a place to begin. 
For books this week, I review He Held Radical Light, The Art of Faith and the Faith of Art by Christian Wyman. In this beautiful sequel to his 2013 memoir, My Bright Abyss, Wyman takes up two of the questions that most powerfully animate his poetry. What is it we want when we can't stop wanting? And how do we make that hunger productive and vital rather than corrosive and destructive? In a book-length essay that moves gracefully between personal anecdote, literary criticism, lyric poetry, and narrative theology, Wyman explores what it means to seek an elusive God both in poetry and in life, and works to reconcile a spiritual hunger that thrives on longings that can never be fulfilled. In many ways, this book is a love letter to poems and poets. Wyman peppers the book with fascinating and often funny encounters he has had with writers. He describes a time when A.R. Ammon showed up for a poetry reading in Virginia but refused to read, saying, you can't possibly be enjoying this. We learn about the time Wyman accompanied Mary Oliver to a literary event and she picked a dead pigeon off the sidewalk and tucked it into her pocket. We learn that when Wyman was 38 years old, Donald Hall told him, I was 38 when I realized not a word I wrote was going to last. Through these and other anecdotes, Wyman humanizes the writers he holds in high esteem, even as he reflects on their lasting legacies. Indeed, a chilling but perhaps also liberating sense of mortality provides the undercurrent of he held radical light. What does it mean to be immortal? Can one's art ever make one immortal? What role can art and faith play in helping us cope with our finitude? How shall we tolerate reality which is perceived truly only when the truth of its elusiveness is part of that perception? Wyman's is not a book of trite answers. It is not a book of answers at all. It is a wise, elegiac book that elevates and makes sacred the questions, the real questions, the deep questions, the essential questions that drive, shape, haunt, and complicate our lives. For films this week, Dan reviews... 1917. This movie about World War I was directed, produced, and co-written by Sam Mendes and is partly based on the stories told to him by his grandfather, Alfred Mendes. 1917 had its detractors, like those who thought that it sanitized the true carnage of the war, that there were historical inaccuracies, that its remarkable technical accomplishments overshadowed the narrative, or that the story was not realistic. I place myself in this camp. But far more critics agreed that it was one of the best films of 2019. It earned 10 nominations at the Academy Awards and won two, and won two Golden Globe Awards. Mendes drops the plot in the first five minutes. Corporals Blake and Schofield receive direct orders from the general for a special mission. Intelligence has determined that the Germans have retreated from the front line, but instead of a retreat, it's a strategic withdrawal, such that if the British pursue the Germans, they will be massacred. Blake and Schofield must deliver the message for the British to call off their attack, a task made more poignant because Blake has an older brother who's embedded in the doomed mission. I watch this film on Amazon streaming. For a disturbing contrast, and if you can bear to watch real film footage from World War I, I commend the music video and its theological message by Johnny Cash called When the Man Comes Around. And lastly, for poetry on this week before the United States presidential election, The Noise of Politics by Walter Brueggemann. We watch as the jets fly in with the power people and the money people, the suits, the budgets, the billions. We wonder about monetary policy because we are among the haves 
and about generosity because we care about the have-nots. By slower modes, we notice Lazarus and the poor arriving from Africa and the beggars from Central Europe and the throng of environmentalists with their vision of butterflies and oil, of flowers and tanks, of growing things and killing fields. We wonder about peace and war, about ecology and development, about hope and entitlement. We listen beyond jeering protesters and soaring jets, and faintly we hear the mumbling of the crucified one. Something about feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty, about clothing the naked and noticing the prisoners. More about the least and about holiness among them. We are moved by the mumbles of the gospel, even while we are tenured in our privilege. We are half ready to join the choir of hope, half afraid things might change, and in a third half of our faith, turning to you and your outpouring love that works justice and that binds us each and all to one another. So we pray amidst jeering protesters and soaring jets, come by here and make new, even at some risk to our entitlements. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 8th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.